welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by that big dumb horse, Coach Trevor Connor. Don't worry, he calls himself that. There are a lot of different analogies, a lot of different tools that cyclists and coaches have come up with over the years to try to measure or understand one basic concept. We all have a limited amount of energy, and to win races, we have to use that energy carefully. Metrics such as calories, kilojoules, watt prime, and FRC are attempts to quantify. Many top pros just have a feel for it, but ultimately we all have a jar of energy we can use in a race. Some of us have bigger jars, some smaller. But the winner of the race isn't necessarily the rider with the biggest jar. It's the rider who still has a little energy left in the jar at the end of the race. So today, we're going to talk about how to use your jar most effectively to make sure every time you pour a little of that precious energy out, it makes an impact. This is a conversation that goes much deeper than that. We'll also talk about suicidal robots, what happens to you in prison, fighting bears, flow states, washing machines, dumb horses, why Rush named a song YYZ, and how ultimate fighting plays into your off-season. We'll also at some point talk about bike racing, including, first, why the best rider always wins the race, even if they're not the strongest rider. Number two, we'll try to define energy and discuss the pros and cons of trying to measure it. Number three, However you measure it, you have a limited supply of energy. So we'll dive into all the ways you can unnecessarily waste energy, including responding to every move, riding in the so-called washing machine, poor positioning, and riding on the front for no reason. Number four, after we talk about all the ways you can waste energy, we'll flip it around and talk about ways to save energy, including finding the sweet spot in the field and seeking to be bored learning to observe the field so you know when it's about to get real and when it's not, learning to think like a sprinter and why it's okay to sit in. Finally, we'll talk about when it's okay to spend energy, like when you're riding for a teammate at those make or break moments in the race or when you smell blood in the water. Our primary guest today, who's looking to be our most frequent guest of all, is the always informative Colby Pierce, racer, coach, bike fitter, thinker, tinkerer and one of the most thoughtful and inquisitive bike racers we know. Along with Colby, we talked with Sepp Kuss, winner of the 2018 Tour of Utah, who rides for the Jumbo Visma, or Jumbo Visma, World Tour team. Finally, we'll touch base with another Canadian and World Grand Fondo champion, Bruce Bird, who talks with us about how to read the field. With that, fill that cookie jar with lots of cookies and get ready to eat them one by one. Let's make it fast. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. The Whoop strap is actually based on a lot of research that's been conducted over the last 10, 15 years. We've talked about some of this. There's been a whole series of studies, and I am not going to give you the names of the authors because I've already embarrassed myself horrifically by mispronouncing them, so you're just going to have to trust me on this. But there's been a whole series of authors that looked at comparing 
athletes who are doing training based on a well-periodized, planned-out training plan compared them to athletes who were basing their training purely on their heart rate variability. So a doctor would analyze their data in the morning and say, you're not recovered, so you're just going to do an easy workout today. Or you are recovered, go out, do some interval work. And amazingly, all these studies, the athletes who did their training based on heart rate variability saw greater adaptations than the athletes who were on that well-mapped-out plan. And, and yeah, that's just what WHOOP does. It takes your heart rate variability score, your resting heart rate score, your sleep quality score, or I should say all of those factors and rolls it into a score that will tell you, today you're ready to go, go out, tear yourself apart, or nah, don't do it, sit on the couch, rest up, have a go tomorrow. WHOOP is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. WHOOP provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. WHOOP tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. WHOOP helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, WHOOP just released the new WHOOP Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The WHOOP Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. WHOOP has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K, so two T's, no space. Just go to WHOOP.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Last time I was here, I walked up the stairs and Trevor's robot greeted me. And I said, hey, Trevor. Your robot came out the door, and oh, I, didn't, I didn't think anything of it. <laughs> and Trevor comes running out the door, and your your it, robot tried to commit suicide. Yes, it tried Uh-oh. to escape. I, I have one of those little Roomba, yeah. ro- Roomba robot vacuum things. Chris opened the door, and it like bolted out to, <laughs> out to the deck. And when I went out to get it, it was halfway off the deck. Foreign contaminant. So if you hear robots chirping, if there's uh, <laughs> weird noises, it's because we're not in our typical studio. We're in a... For now, makeshift studio. We're gonna we're gonna spruce this place up. We're gonna make it. We're gonna dial it in. Here we are. So we can and any weird noises go. on robots. Yes. So fast talk. Friend of cyclists, not of robots. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today for perhaps the fourth time. I'm not really sure, but you might be our most frequent guest at this point. No, you're not. No. Brent? We, we have to fix this because I actually got a tweet. Somebody saying, well, we should call this the Fast Talk and, and Colby Show. <laughs> and so I actually, I keep a record of everybody and I look ah. back and you were number three. Oh, whoa. So we got to fix that. Me, I'm going to have to assassinate them. Or... Uh, I think Walter. Book Walter has you beat. I can't yeah. remember the other one. You're talking about how many times their voice has appeared. Been, so yeah. How many episodes they've Book appeared Book Walter on. has never been the main guest, whereas you have. You got That's a of, good point. Lots of Brent snippets. Yes, yes correct. He's good, he's good for snippets. He is. Yeah, yeah, not much else. <laughs> oh, sorry. 
Which reminds me, we're getting him on the show this fall. <laughs> Stay tuned. Finally. Maybe not now. <laughs> well, today we want to talk about not robots, but the energy game. How to take advantage of all of those things to save up all that energy so you can release it at the optimum time. And we have Colby here because he's been doing this forever. He thinks about these things. As we know from our previous discussions, he thinks about these things. He knows about these things. Curious man. I would say I have understanding of these things based on personal experience because I spent a whole air quotes racing career and air quotes. Why, why quote, why air quotes? Well, (laughs) okay. To segue for a brief moment. I mean, you call yourself a professional in a sport. Some people might say, and I think this definition is reasonable that in order to call yourself a professional, you have to be making, let's say minimum wage as an actual salary practice in that sport. So of all the years that I was on professional teams in the U.S., very few of them would that would I make that definition or that cut. That rules I did out, make it from time to time. That rules sure. out the women, basically. Women <laughs> and 60% of male cyclists. Oh, in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's – and what saddens me most is that I battled that when I was a pro, but the game hasn't changed that much yeah. since I stopped racing. That's the worst part. It really hasn't – the depth – and breadth of the the payment scheme or structure in professional cycling as a as a sport has not really changed dramatically, and that's kind of a bummer to see. So, anyways, yeah, but I say that with all seriousness. Like, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm squarely in the middle of no man's land in the sport of cycling, in the sense that the sweet spot, actually, yeah, kind of the sweet spot. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are people who are like, "Wow, you're so unbelievably fast! You did this and that and that," and then there are other people who could literally rip me off their wheel in 30 seconds. And yeah. I've got it on both sides. Now, most people in the sport can say that. It's just a question of what your peer group is on and what the ride context is. But I think it's always important to keep that perspective. Maybe we shouldn't have Colby on. He doesn't He doesn't sound like he's got a lot of confidence in himself. <laughs> well, the point I was actually trying to make is that I spent a whole air quotes career basically making the most out of what yeah, is really a glorified exactly. hummingbird engine. I mean, I'm not a high-powered rider. I've never had a big VO2, never had a lot of watts to throw around. So That's why you had to use your brain more. My brain, my, ooh, how am I going to survive in this draft? Um, how am I going to make it down around the course in this corner? Oh, it's, I'm going to have to corner two miles an hour faster than most other people. It's just the mm-hmm, way it is. Mm-hmm. And then you develop skills by necessity as the mother of invention. You know, on that note, I have seen a lot of cyclists that have enormous engines that can't win a race because they just well, get taken advantage of. They so don't that's use a great, their brain. That's a great point. I call that the Phil Gaiman complex or Phil Gaiman example. Does he Phil, say Gaiman or Gaiman? I don't really know. I, I'm going with Gaiman. Okay. We've we um, got to keep count of how many people we offend on this particular episode. <laughs> so far, we got Book Walter Gaiman. I, <laughs> what I else can we him. go for? I coached okay. Phil for a while, so I'm, I'm just going to go with it. All right. But- Phil's a great example because he is obviously an enormously talented cyclist in a pretty narrow bandwidth, i.e. VO2, and he's skinny, and he's got a good, he's got the right fiber type to make power on steep hills, right? And Phil, but Phil grew up racing in Florida, where his skills weren't maybe as useful as they could have been initially, but he was still probably, on any given day, at least 5% or 10% stronger than the next strongest guy in any group ride race he did. The advantage to that is that Phil could win pretty much whenever he wanted. He could do ridiculous stuff. The mm. disadvantage is Get away that with it, so to speak. The disadvantage is he never learned to hide his cards. He never had right. to. Yeah. Uh, even if the entire field of 80 people ganged up on him and a breakaway got up the road five minutes, Phil would eventually just wait till everyone got bored and then he would just swing out into the wind, pass the entire field in one giant sprint, and then bridge the five-minute gap solo and then probably drop everyone and win. That happened multiple times. He was that good. But then when he got to Europe and suddenly 
The deck was filled with cards that were very close to his ability level. He couldn't corner as fast. He didn't understand yep. how to save those cards. That plays exactly into what we're talking about, which is how do you learn how to save energy for the right moment and use your bullets at the right time? Because mm -hmm. when Phil gets in European Peloton, he's no longer a big fish in a little pond. He's a he's a big fish in a sea full of sharks. Yep. And still very talented, but development timeline was sort of staggered and a little bit discordant because he couldn't he didn't carry the skills, the basic skills, the basic racing skills with him to Europe that could have helped him prosper on a bigger level. So we get to have his awesome worst retirement ever show, which is whole different outcome and pretty cool. <laughs> That's a conversation I've had with a lot of athletes when they're at that phase where they can just win a race by outpowering everybody. What I always say is you will eventually hit a level where you can't do that, yes. where you are going to put in your biggest attack, look back and everybody's sitting on your wheel. There's and only like two people in the world that can do that. Peter Sagan at his best and Matthew Vanderpool at his best. And the rest of the world can't always mm -hmm. get away with that stuff. Right. You got to be clever and strong. That's what is amazing about bike racing. That's why it's not an ergometer test or a marathon. It actually involves tactics. And that's why the outcome of almost any race is never known. Even a race as long and hard as the tour until it actually happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what makes cycling a beautiful sport. People miss this point all the time. They get frustrated. Oh, the best rider didn't win. Um, no, actually the best rider won every time. Yeah. Yes. There are those crimes that happen occasionally. Like when Shelly Olds made the break in the Olympic road race and then flatted out of it. Right. That was a crime, but it wasn't a crime against Shelly and it wasn't a crime against tactics. It was a crime of this is 2012 and we still have pneumatic failures in bike races, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous. So things happen like that. But aside from that, the best rider always wins yep. the race. Yeah. Right. Because they were the smart. If you're dumb enough to tow them to the line, they're smart enough to spring around you. Yeah. So let's talk here about energy. And why don't we start by giving, I won't do one of my nerd bombs and give no, you the scientific on, definition please, of energy. Please. <laughs> there really isn't much. It's just jewels. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Sorry. I'm not going to excite you with that one. But let's talk about what energy is and, and even is there a way to essentially measure energy that you can use in a race? Anybody want to jump on this one? I gave mine. It's jewels. <laughs> really simple. Yeah, I mean, kilojoules is is the the basic um, measurement. It's the amount of work done over a ride or a race, right? The interesting part about that is it doesn't really consider the rate at which you do that work. So you could burn a thousand kJs in one hour. That's a really hard hour. Or you can burn a thousand kilojoules over four hours, where you're just puttering along doing nothing. No, here's my nerd bomb because uh, power is defined as work time over time, mm -hmm. right? So it is. That's where you put in the time component. Yep. So then we're getting into a conversation about TSS, which is a way to score intensity over time, right? Right. So that's one way to look at it. And then you can break that down into different parts, such as FRC or functional reserve capacity or W prime is another way to look at a similar metric. Yeah, they're basically the same. So W yeah. prime is what the scientific literature has been using for right. decades. FRC is now what you're seeing in some of the, the software and other right. packages. FRC is common term, right? So functional reserve capacity. So that's basically... The amount of work you can do over threshold in theory, this is hotly debated amongst the science geeks and the training geeks out there right now. It's sort of, right now it's quantified in the number of KJs, at least FRC is. What I find interesting about this to nerd out for a minute is that we quantify threshold as an absolute number, right? Which right. that's a whole other conversation as to whether that's a good strategy or not. But we don't quantify FRC as an absolute number. We don't say your FRC is 525 watts. Instead, we say, well, this is how many kilojoules of work you could do in between your threshold and infinity, your sprint power. So there are different ways to burn up those cages. In theory, you could be just 20 watts over your threshold 
and you might have a longer duration, but it would still be the same number of kilojoules as if, on the other hand, you were 100 watts over your threshold, you might only have a couple minutes. So we were just talking about this before. I just did a time trial at 9,000 feet after spending a month at sea level. I can tell you that threshold is definitely not absolute. <laughs> <laughs> and my FRC was zero. <laughs> if you go to a high enough altitude, does your FRC just hit zero even out of the box? Pretty much. Probably. Yeah, probably. There was a point in the road race where somebody attacked and went, oh, I should cover that. And I went, oh, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> just watch them right away. <laughs> it's a governor. Yeah, I agree. I really struggle with FTP because it is relative on any given day. And on a day where a rider's super smashed after seven days of hard work, FTP becomes this hypothetical ghost number. Well, it's still 310 right. watts. Could you do 310 watts for an hour right now? Well, no, I'm tired. Well, then what does it mean? Sorry. No, I mean, these are all good points. Uh, that was kind of what I wanted to get at is we have these metrics that can be useful, mm. but I don't think there is yet a number that we can put on energy saying, here's how much energy mm. you have in the race. Here's what you can use. We had an episode probably a few months ago now, where we talked with Mondo at Exert, and they had this really interesting kind of live equivalent to FRC, but it adjusts as you're going hard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I, I thought episode. was really appealing because that's more accurate. Mm -hmm. It's going to go up and down as you do these efforts. It's like, that jar analogy. And there are other companies working on a similar metric. I was talking to Pat Warner and Ben Sharp at Stages, and they've got their dash head unit, and they were talking about doing a similar metric where you're, you're quantifying a rider's FRC or I don't know if they're going to use that terminology or not exactly, but that concept. And then you could see on the screen, in theory, you've got one bullet left or 10% left of your right. gas tank of magic bullets or matches. however you want to. Matches. You have, you you have, your matchbook yeah. is low. Yeah, your matchbook is low. So proceed with caution. For me, this gets also back to the heart of our conversation, which is what are we using these metrics for? And in my mind, I think people really, coaches and riders alike, tend to put the cart before the horse in a way they're looking at a proxy. At times, I believe people perceive that the proxy is the real thing. Watts are meaningless. They're just a metric we use to help us understand what's happening. What are we trying to understand? You're trying to understand how much juice you have in the tank. At that moment in that road race, Trevor, when you went to follow that attack and you realized, I can't do this, you didn't look at your power meter and do a math equation and go, well, could I follow this attack? I've been doing 285 watts up the last climb for 14 minutes, and then we searched to 310. You just knew immediately because you've been racing for how many years? 25 years? 30 years? My age? Uh, 10. So I learned <laughs> oh, how to good bike, job. yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm momentarily <laughs> confused with me. I've been racing for over 30 years. Yeah, no, 25-ish, something yeah. like that. So, yeah, I've never done the count. Right. Yeah, you got to get after that. He's been racing since he was zero. You can throw it around a podcast like me. He's been racing since Oh, no. So did, did I tell you this story? I was in a race, what, a year ago where some kid kind of gave me attitude. And my normal line is... Kid, don't give me attitude. I've been racing since you've been a training wheel. So I was yep. about to say it, and I'm like, wait a minute, how old are you? <laughs> and he tells me, and I go, oh, God, I've been racing since before you were alive. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, so you didn't look at your head unit at that moment, you know, or flick to some screen and see what your max power was or power in time time and zones or anything. You knew intuitively and instantly that if you follow that attack, you might explode into a million pieces and have to stop racing or get shelled hopelessly or yep. whatever. So... My point is that is the essence of bike racing is knowing at your soul in the core of your being how many watts you have left and finding the limit of that depth. That is the point of competition. Heart rate, kilojoules, FRC, the time on the road, how many bottles you drank, how much food you had, all those are different things you keep track of to help you figure that out, to help you 
hone and refine that intuition. That is the art of bike racing. That's what it's about. And if you don't understand this, go read The Rider by Tim Crabbe, and that'll give you a little window, perhaps. Agree completely. But my quick addendum, I did look at my power later. And mm-hmm. then I cried and cried <laughs> and that's cried. What, that's what power is. That's what files are for is to do a postmortem afterwards and help you learn and go, okay, I can see that on the first climb I went way too ballistic. I didn't feel like I was. So my intuition was a little mistaken. I had my balls were too big or whatever. Yeah. Ovaries, excuse me, ladies. And I got too excited and I, I went way deep trying to keep up with yeah. whoever. And then I put myself in the hole or conversely, Okay, I can see that I was a little too conservative in the first half of that time trial, and I could have ridden a little harder, and I probably left a few seconds on the course. So we're going to get more into the the strategy later in this episode, but just going with this example, what I did, I arrived at the race thinking, okay, I want to get in the breakaway, I want to be in the move, I want to attack, I want to be aggressive, and just hadn't factored in, I just spent a month at sea level, I can't attack at all at 8,000 feet. So when the attacks happened and I saw that I couldn't do anything, I immediately changed my strategy and went, I I got no high intensity. I got no big power. So I started racing by when they would ease up, move to to the front. front. I would be like second wheel. And when they would attack, I would even try to respond. I would just sag, sag, start Mm -hmm. ramping up the speed slowly so I could get back onto the back of the field. Mm -hmm. And then when they used up, move back up to second wheel. And that's how I had to get up the climb. And how did you were you able to survive in the pack until the final grade? I think the race finished. I survived at the high school outside of Netherland. No, it's all the way up to the ski resort. Oh, so finished with a, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's like what a 5k climb that starts at about 9,200 or something, right? Uh, So the high school is at 84. Right. No, I mean, the shelf road climb probably starts at probably about 9,000. The highest point of the race was 93. Let's check in all oh. this afterwards. Okay. So a little lower. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably a 5K climb. Or, it's high. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's high and it hurts. That's a rough finish. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's a hilltop finish at a really high yeah. altitude. I mean, I was on a time limit. Unfortunately, you can do this. You can only do the sagging so much when there's 20 people in the race. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And I eventually got caught out by it and then just went, okay, I'm going to go into time trial mode. And yeah. I basically just held pace with them almost all the way to the top of the climb. Yeah. And then I got in with a few guys peak to peak and, and finished with them. Okay. That's all I could do. That's all I had the energy for. And that's sometimes survival mode is the mission. Yeah. So, I mean, we could talk about all the metrics, but I'm just going to throw out the way I like to describe it. I like to think of it as a jar of energy. Mm-hmm. We all have a, a jar. Each of us has a different size jar. Some people's jar is bigger. Some people's jar is smaller. That's one factor. But the other factor is the size of the mouth. The rate at which it can Right. Empty. It's how much mm-hmm. can you dump the energy out. So I'm somebody, like I said, I, I was made from the ground up to be a domestique. I've got a huge jar with a very narrow mouth. So I have a lot of energy to spend, but I can't spend it very fast. Mm-hmm. Where a sprinter might have a much smaller jar, but a huge a, mouth. A giant lid that he can unscrew and just dump it all over the floor immediately. All out. Right. And I think it's really important to know what type of jar you have because mm-hmm. that's going to play into your strategy a lot. So mm-hmm. with me, I know if it comes down to a sprint, if there's four of us in the sprint, I'm fourth. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it's going to work. But if I can turn it into a race of let's all spend a whole lot of energy, I'm going to outlast mm-hmm. a whole lot of people. For sure. What yeah. size jar are you, Colby? I'm always a small everything. Sm- small jar with a small mouth? Um, I'd say you're a medium jar with a medium mouth. <laughs> getting weird, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it to. <laughs> I appreciate maybe, that. Maybe I do. I appreciate that. 
Well, I'll say this. It's all relative, of course. It's all relative, but also depends. Cycling, this is what another beautiful thing about cycling is. There's so many little niches of the sport. And so it really depends on what kind of race we're talking about. On the track, you're one thing. Yes. Right. That's what I'm saying. And of course, that's because the demands of the event are different on the track. You know, what's the, the most easy to compare apples to apples metric we use to compare riders all the time is watts per kilo. And that, of course, applies very well to a race like the one Trevor is talking about with a, a whole bunch of climbing and then finishes with a whole bunch of climbing and then a, a right. climbing cherry on top. But watts per kilo, we have to remember, to quote Coggin, all mathematical models are invalid. The question is, what is their domain of validity? Meaning, how is watts per kilo actually useful in the real world? Well, you got to remember what it is. I mean, watts per kilo is just numbers on a paper, and those numbers represent how much power the rider is putting out relative to their weight, which means that in the real world, that would be two riders riding against each other And we're comparing the watts per kilo, but they're riding in a vacuum because it has zero account for aerodynamics. And in nearly all bike racing, aerodynamics play a massive role in the outcome. Massive. There are lots of other factors that confound things like watts per kilo in predicting race results, unless you're talking about a really steep hill climb. If you're talking about Pikes Peak Hill Climb, watts per kilo is a great way to predict the outcome of a race. Or Zwift. Yeah, or Zwift, (laughs) assuming the rider's honest about their what, the, the kilo part. So to that end... You look at the demands of the event, like uh, in a track race, in a points race, which was one of my specialties, the race is about 35 to 45 minutes long, and you average about anywhere between 50 and 55K an hour. So aerodynamics play a heavy, heavy role in the outcome of that race. And I happen to be really aero. I'm not that big of a motor, but the other thing I can do is go kind of go again and again and again and again. And I've got a big FRC, but the size of the bursts that I'm doing are big, but they're aero. And so I'm recovering better than a rider, so it adds up. Mm-hmm. So over time, I slowly start to gain an advantage over my peer group, and that's how I was successful. But you put an engine like that, in particular one with my fiber type, which isn't really that good at dealing with steep stuff or high torque situations, and you put me in a domestic road race with steep climbs, and I was nothing special at all. If I was really, really trained and really, really fresh and everything went great, I could be and have an impact on some of the domestic professional races, you know, like Sea Otter or stuff like that. Redlands, I was kind of floating around here and there, but I never had great results at a lot of those classic stage races, something like Bose, I just be getting my teeth kicked in all week. I mean, I was there, I was part of the pack, but I wasn't doing anything special. So to that end, that goes back to knowing yourself and knowing what kind of engine you have. And also the nuance of that is knowing what kind of engine, how your engine specifically will play out on what type of course. And if you want to waste a lot of energy, try really, really, really hard to win races that you suck at. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I've done that a lot in my in my racing adventures. By choice or and by <laughs> just by stubbornness, yeah, and right. Raw no, I... passion for the sport, absolutely. Then after a while, I was like, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm really not that good at this. Maybe I should do something else. And then one day, I was like, I think I'll try track racing. And then I was like, oh wait, I clicked. Better at this. That's part of the adventure too, is figuring out where you use your bullets. And if I can interject with one more point to that effect. I have, I've had this conversation with a couple of my riders recently. I do believe that we always need to look at the long game of the sport at least 12 months in advance whenever you're thinking about your season and your goals. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, athletes need to understand that when you there are only so many efforts, so many times you can really reach down into your soul and dig really deep. Yeah. And if you're smart, you use those efforts on days where the race suits you and things are going well. You haven't already flatted four times Mm. and you have a shot to do the best you're going to do. That's the day to use those rides. Now, if you're competing at the world level, then you use that on world championship day, but most people aren't. Maybe it's their district time trial, or maybe it's their district criterium championships. That's the day where they dig and that's their goal race. 
But far too often, I see athletes use that that level of effort on a training ride, in a group ride, or in a race where they have really no chance of doing well anyway. Maybe they're not a climber, but they're just absolutely destroying themselves in a local hill climb. Like, be smart about this. Dial this back. Use this as training and use your energy on the day where it's really going to benefit you and maximize things because maybe we've got half a dozen, maybe a dozen really deep days in a hard season mm-hmm. tops. And those days, if you use them right, you're throttled afterwards. Yeah. I think of it as you have this line. And as long as you stay below that line, you're going to recover. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Everybody can cross that line. But when you cross it, there's a price to pay. Yeah. And it might be a week, two weeks before you you recover. And so, as you said, mm-hmm. you got to know that line. And if you're about to cross it, you have to look at it. You have to look at the race. You have to look at the event mm-hmm. and go, is it, worth is, it? is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Is Kansas your goal for the season? And, and you're doing well, that's probably a good place to cross that line. But if you've already <laughs> yeah. flatted nine times, does it make sense to cross that line to bridge up to the 300th rider and smash them before you cross the line? Probably not. Like Save it for another day. Well, why don't we move into some specifics and give some examples of wasting energy? How do people do this? Why do people do this? Mm. So I'm going to throw out the first one because this is the biggest to me is watching riders respond to every single move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is when I last few years when I was coaching up in Toronto, we had a couple riders on our team who I would talk to after the race because I would see this. They were just nonstop attacks. Breakaways would only last 20, 30 seconds, and then mm-hmm. the next one would go. And we had riders on the team who would respond to every single one. Mm-hmm. And then when the real move went 40 minutes into the race, they it were nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Yeah, and I think to generalize, you see mm. this in lower categories more than you do in, in mm. the Cat 1 races. But it, that's, again, a generalization. That's a broad stroke. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yep. You have to be willing to let things go up the road. And more importantly, you, you have to experiment in races and learning to identify that move's going nowhere, that move's going nowhere. Okay, that one's dangerous. I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. All the great breakaway riders that I've ridden with and I that I know, they have an incredible sense for that. They can let 20 moves go up the road without you know, even batting an eyelash. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one move goes, they're out of the field like a bullet, and you never see it again. Yeah. yeah. Take some patience. It takes some knowing yeah. your competitors. It takes some confidence, too, in knowing that mm. you're making the right choices. If you're not, you're out of the game. Yeah. I would say that I've been on all sides of that equation at different points. Meaning there are days where I've been the guy chasing every move and then miss the actual break. Yep. There are days where I've been sitting and watching and waiting and waiting and waiting and knowing. And then you just get hit by a bolt of lightning and you know, oh, that's the move. Boom. Mm -hmm. And you go with it and you're gone. And other people are looking at you like you're from Mars because you haven't done anything for an hour. And then I've been the guy who has intentionally covered every single move. And in certain very narrow circumstances, um, just to offer a counterpoint, I think that can be applicable. Points racing is a good example of that, especially at the World Cup level where you've got 24 riders on the track and 20 of them are legit bike riders. And you really, it's hard to look around and know, sure, who's going to comprise the final break here. And and points races can go, for those of you who may not know, any which way. You You can put 24 riders on the track and ride them once and no riders will lap. It'll be a sprinter's race. Although sprinter's race is really a misnomer because when you have 12 sprints, that's not something a sprinter can, a true sprinter can yeah. usually repeat. On the other hand, you can have that same 24 riders on the track and put them there and you'll get the winner will lap four times. So it's an absolute yard sale. There are people everywhere. And so there are lots of chances. That means the second place, third place, and fourth place riders may have taken three laps, et cetera, et cetera. 
So that involves covering a lot of moves. The interesting part about it is later in my career, I started to work really honestly, and this is a bit of an off the wall idea, but just go with me on it. I started to work on my, Chris Sorry. is laughing at me as though. <laughs> this is nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really believe that when riders are really in tune with what's happening and they have rested, peaceful, confident mind, they can go into a race and have a large degree of premonition. You nice. have all humans have buoyances, clairvoyance, audibuoyance, etc. It's just a question of tapping into it. And there are days where I would go to the race and as a coach, I was able to do this on certain days. And as a rider, I would look at the points race field when they were all standing waiting for bike check. And I would look and just see and listen to what my brain came up with and my intuition came up with. And I would say, these four riders are going to be in the top three. And there were three or four times where I was 100% right. I did it once when Brad Huff raced a World Cup. I was like, follow this guy, that guy, and that guy. Now, as it turned out that day, Brad didn't have the legs to follow any of those guys, but those guys were the top three. I just knew. And it wasn't because I'd watched their splits or knew their training or talked to their coaches or anything. I just, you just see it. You just know it. Yeah. A lot of the people listening here, you're racing the same people. Right. Every race. Right. You can start to get a sense of you who's sense. the guys that are always in the breakaway and who are the guys yeah. that are never in the breakaway. Yeah. And take advantage of that. For sure. For sure. And that's local familiarity is a powerful weapon in that sense. I'm talking about maybe another level from that where I'm racing with 20 guys I don't know at all. Then it's a little them. harder and you just have to. Yeah. Yep. It's just raw intuition. And there are moments also, I'll say, in a peloton, a road peloton, particularly in a road race where the field's kind of whipped into that angry bee's nest sort of action of the race or, or chapter of the race where people are attacking and, and you know there's going to be a breakaway and it's happening and it's just blunt force trauma. People are just hitting and hitting and hitting and going, right? And you're sort of watching going, is that it? Is that the move? Ooh, should I follow this one? Should I follow that one? And they're not always, but frequently, if you're really in touch with what's happening, the psychology of the Peloton, you feel the energy of the Peloton approaching a kind of a crescendo. Mm -hmm. And when that point hits, the very next move is the one. So it's not even necessarily about mechanically or intellectually thinking who is in the break. These riders are dangerous. It's more about the timing. It's about the energy of the peloton. You can just tell that everybody's just frenetic and they're going and going and the elastic's going to break and it's just the right move. You cover one or two moves and boom, that's it. You're gone. And whoosh. I love that you bring that up because so many riders really focus on the, this is what they, what they read or what they're told is you have to have the right mix in the breakaway, yeah. which is always nice. And there's certain teams that you do need to see in the breakaway, mm -hmm. but you're never going to have that perfect mix. Right. And I see guys miss breakaways because it's always what well, wasn't quite was right. Team. Right. Yeah. I yeah. always tell people, spend more time looking behind you than in front of you mm -hmm. for exactly what you're saying. There are times you can attack the field at 500 watts and you won't get a second on them. Yep. There are times you can just roll away at 200 watts and you'll get 30 Instant seconds. Gas. Yep. You have to read what's going on in the field because that gives you a better sense of when the winning move is going to happen and when it yeah. isn't. I agree with you 100%. And just like any flow state, right? You hear athletes talk about their perfect race or their perfect marathon or whatever they did. And flow state descriptions tend to be very common. You have access to intellectual thought, but you're also following to a large degree your instinct and, and you feel connected to your body. And that's ultimately the state that you want to tap into that state consciously whenever possible you want to be able to drop into it by choice but particular whenever you're trying to solve a tactical equation there's so many variables weather course undulations uh heat temperature and humidity team interactions team tactics different objectives of different teams all those you're factoring in together and it's a giant pile of spaghetti noodles you're trying to make sense of it if you're in that flow state suddenly things can become clear 
But if you're not, if you're conflicted, if you're thinking about how you didn't eat the right breakfast, if your stomach's upset, if you forgot one of your water bottles or, you know, you got in a fight with your girlfriend on the way to the race or whatever, then that can disrupt that flow state. Or if you forget your shoes, that tends to do it. <laughs> That's really going to mess you up. Usually, I've seen that a few times. It's a, big, it's a big problem. How many times have you done that? Never done it myself. Never? Wow. Never done it myself. Not yet. I, I did take a guy all the way from Canada down to Arkansas to do tri-peaks. <laughs> oh, First day, our hotel was like a good hour and a half away from where the stage started. Yeah. yeah. We got there and the guy's just like, uh, oh no. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's not a good feeling. No, no. <laughs> no, we told him to go knock on the United van and no. tell him he's beg. an idiot and beg, beg. And they were nice enough to lend him some shoes. That's good. Being out of position, whether that's sitting on the front, uh, sitting on the outsides, just mm -hmm. not knowing where you should be at any given moment in a race, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Well, in general, sitting on the, the edge of the peloton, it's, a, it's pros and cons. If you're sitting on the edge, if you think of the head of the peloton like a shape, kind of like an arrow and you're along the edges of the arrow, then you're getting more wind, but you have easier access to cover attacks or move up as needed. When you're in the middle, you're getting a much better draft, but you're at the whim of who's in front of you. You can't respond to an attack that happens three riders to the right of you if you're six riders back. you can All you can do is watch it, and then you hear people yell sometimes, hey, go, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing nothing sounds more futile than telling other people how to race their bike. <laughs> so there's pros and cons to that. When you're on the outside of the peloton, you're catching more wind. One way to minimize that is always be conscious of usually there's some degree of side wind happening. So if you're going to be on the side of the peloton, be on the downwind side. That's not rocket science. Unfortunately, that tends to be in the gutter most of the time. So then you're subject to more road furniture, more cracks between in the gap between the asphalt and the concrete, curbs, dogs, pedestrians, road debris, Everything, you know, yeah. flat tires, people sliding off in the grass, all that stuff. So again, it's always pros and cons. I kind of think of being in a Peloton is a little bit of a binary equation. Like every time you are afforded the opportunity to either move up or stay where you are, it's kind of like a one or a zero. And the more zeros you choose, the more conservative you're being, the more energy you're harnessing and saving for later, but the more chances you're giving up in the short term. You might be fine with that. If your whole objective is to wait till the final 5k climb and then torch everybody, and no matter what happens the first part of the day, then you're going to make all zero choices the first part of the race. You're going to hide. You're always going to be on the downwind side. You're always going to try to be in the middle of the pack eating and drinking. When they, when there's a really big acceleration in front of you, you're going to sag a little bit, let a couple of riders get around you. And then when it opens up later, you might inch your way up a little bit again. But on the other hand, if you're actively trying to make the breakaway in the first 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of the race, you're making all one choices. You have to be on the outside of the peloton to be reactive. Yep. You have to see what's happening. You have to see who's in the breakaway. So you can decide if you want to jump across as a second move and bridge etc. And you have to also, whenever you start to get swallowed, you have to actively box your way out of that corner so that you can be part of the race again. Because if you're passive, you're not going to be able to make the break. So this goes back to your earlier point about how important it is to learn to read the field and see what's yeah. going on. Because there are times in the race where nothing's going on. So sit Absolutely. in the middle of the field. You got it. There are times where if you're five wheels out of position, your race is over. over. And you need to know those moments. I mean, I still remember first pro race I ever did. The, the thing that struck me the most was seeing all these guys who were high-level pros mm. at the back of the field, sometimes even off the back, just yeah. chatting away, you were like, not paying attention. I'm like, I thought they were pros. So don't they know better? <laughs> and then over you know, the year, I realized... At the right moment, they're at the front. They have to take right. advantage of those relaxed moments. They knew when nothing was going on. And they well, went to the back and saved energy. The essence of this principle is that as a professional rider, you become very astute and very accomplished at saving as much energy as possible at the right moment, which is a 
course, what we're talking about. And that sometimes means literally being last wheel in the Peloton mm-hmm. and conserving. Yep. Because when you're riding in a big Peloton, 80, 100, Tour de France Peloton, you know, 180, 200 riders, that's a massive amount of wind that you don't have to deal with in the back. But 180 riders accelerates, and that's a long <laughs> pace line. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> I When I was learning how to read the field, one of the first things I learned to do is there were certain riders, exactly like Chris was saying. If they were at the back, you knew nothing was going on. Yeah. And when you saw them at the front, get you scared. Do. Yeah. Something's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Yeah. One of my first Boulder Roubaix road races, which is a famous local race here in Colorado, it's just like it sounds. It's half half dirt, half paved, approximately, depending on which year and which iteration you did. I showed up thinking I knew what I was doing, and all the course light guys were there, and there was a huge field. This is back when we had 100 rider pelotons and local 1 2 races, which unfortunately isn't really a thing too often anymore. And I went into that first dirt section, probably 85th wheel thinking I was going (laughs) to do something cool, save energy. That was a great example of a painful lesson, Mm. saving energy at the wrong moment because I got my teeth kicked in. I spent the next three hours hanging on for dear life, chasing, going through the shrapnel, guys getting dropped, crashing, flatting, water bottles, bottles. dirt, dust, can't see. (laughs) Yeah, it was, that was one of my early. You had a story to tell after that one, but you didn't do very well. Okay, so we have to move on to this next one because Colby added this to our list, and I really want to hear what this is. Mm-hmm. Riding in the washing machine as a way of wasting energy. Yeah, I've been guilty of this many times. If you think about the front of the peloton, once the breakaway is established or once the rhythm of the race is established, there tends to be about four or five riders at the front pulling or you know plus or minus. And then just behind that, there's sort of a group of about, we'll say, maybe 30% of the total peloton size that's sort of trying to be sixth wheel. And this is the washing machine. So you, you kind of battle your way up to sixth wheel or, or eighth wheel. So you can see what's going on. You can feel like you're at the front. And then another rider comes past you, another rider comes past you. And then you end up getting spit back to about 25th wheel. And then you start the process over again. And if you do that for 30, 40, 100K, it's a lot of wasted energy. And I, remember, I recall one day, I think it might have been in a stage in Bose, where I just got sick of doing that for like 100K. And I dropped back. And then there was Ian McGregor at the back of the field. And he's like, dude, I've been watching you do that for like an hour and a half. What the hell are you doing? And he was just sitting there like three lengths <laughs> off the back of 130 rider field, just floating, telling stories and like eating gummy bears. And he went on to win a stage and I didn't. That had nothing to do with the fact that I'd waste all the energy. Ian was just a way, way better bike racer than I was. But it was a good lesson for me because I just was so engaged in trying to be at the front. I was I was a little... And, and to be fair, in my mind, I was... Being, being conscious attentive. of rolling yeah. terrain, I was yeah. being attentive and I was worried about a little bit about crosswinds and things sure. exploding. It's but, tricky sometimes to know when yeah. when to be attentive and yep. when to relax. Like yep. Trevor yep. was saying, you know, you can key off of other guys sometimes, but you're always taking a risk too. Yeah. Some but degree. It's it's pros and cons. And yep. I agree with you hundred percent. To be six wheel, you have to fight. It takes a lot of energy. There are people who are gonna constantly want to take that wheel from you and you have to keep fighting them. Yeah. Twenty fifth wheel. It's pretty easy to sit there. It doesn't take as much energy and you're still in the race. You're in the race. You're you're close enough to where if something really happened, you could be reactive. And get up to, to that. Get up to wheel. it. Yeah. If someone, yeah, five guys suddenly go rocketing off the front that are a threat or whatever. The flip side of that example is one year when I worked with the Garmin Sharp team, I did the Vuelta España as a staff member. And uh, during one particular stage where the riders were a bit cracked, we the AC had broken in the bus about two days prior. So everyone was pretty, pretty blown at that point, driving around in September and August and September and Southern Spain, whoo, air conditioning is, is important there. And anyway, at one point, Ryder was, uh, Ryder Hedgedahl was way back in the Peloton, like last wheel. And I don't know if a team specifically targeted him or 
but it was just one of those moments in a grand tour where the pace abruptly changed. Everyone was bunched up and riding along and just doing their thing. And there was some breakaway up the road. And then the Peloton just exploded with 60 K to go. And Ryer was in the last group. It was in yep. the Peloton was in pieces and complete yard sale. And the entire team had to drive back, drop back and chase and chase and chase and chase. And I think, I think, if I recall correctly, they still lost a couple minutes by the time they hit the line. It wasn't mm. a massive bleeding of time, but it was definitely giving up time. And it just goes to show you that the larger the Peloton and the deeper the pointy end of that is in terms of strength, the bigger risk you're taking with that kind of thing happening. Because if you're at the wrong end of that when it goes, man, it's just, yeah, it's just a yep. numbers game. And it's the same thing with crosswinds. A 12-rider echelon that is working well together can annihilate a single rider. Yep. annihilate in one kilometer, probably less. You have no chance when all those riders can be 60% as strong as you. If they're working well together and using the wind, you're done. You have no chance. It's the power of the group working together in the wind that does it. So that was a painful lesson for me as a young rider. And it's something you only need to learn a couple of times. It's basically like being bludgeoned with a baseball bat. All right, that sucked. Yep. I think I'll avoid that next time. The first time I ever did Tour of the Tuna, first stage, do this math in your head quickly. First stage, 107 kilometers. Two hours, three minutes. And it was not flat. Just 50K an hour. Yeah. It yeah, was really fast. Anybody who got a flat tire, they, yeah. they, they were just Go toast. On. But the last probably 510K, we were strung out single file. And I remember coming over this hill, I was middle of the pack. So there was over 200 people in the field. And you could see kilometer up the road. And it was just a line of riders. And I remember afterwards, we crossed the finish line, still just absolutely strung out. Mm -hmm. And I did kind of a loop around the block to cool down. And the field was still finishing. Still finishing, yeah. And so it, it turned out the time between the when the first rider crossed the finish line and the last rider crossed, and they all got the same time because there ended up being no gaps amazingly. <laughs> wow. Was over two minutes. Wow. But had there been one gap, one gap. in there... Somebody would have lost a minute or more. Yeah, right. Yeah, or huh. a whole group would have. Yeah. yeah. So with that field wants to drive it. Sounds like it's, if the line was 500 meters later, the field would have shattered and there would have been enough gaps. It just yeah. happened to be stretched out on the line. That's It was really, really cool. Yeah. I've never seen that again. Yeah. But it was it was wild. But that's what, as you said, that's what a field can do. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're not moving up. You can't do anything about it. Yeah. Sepp Kuz with Team Yumbo Visma was a breakout star in 2018, winning the Tour of Utah handily and then doing his first Grand Tour at the Volta. Sepp won Utah in dramatic fashion, expending a lot of energy. But since heading to Europe, he's had to learn a lot about how to play the energy game. You've, you've come a long way in the last three years. You, you raced in a criterium in Denver three years ago or three and a half years ago now, and you had to have a teammate or a teammate came up to you and said, Hey, Sepp, you might want to ride in the drops. And here we are. You're racing at the Vuelta in your first year on the world tour. That's a, that's a rapid progression. I'm sure there are a few pieces of the puzzle that are missing from your repertoire. But I wonder if one of the things you've had to pick up the most is how to be efficient in a pack, when to conserve your energy and when to attack. Is that true? Have you been able to pick up that well? Personally, that's one thing that I need to work on the most is just yeah, be, be better at, at, at saving energy um, during the race and wait for the, the key moments. But, you know, a, a lot of it just comes with uh, with experience. But, yeah, that was the cool thing about the, the Vuelta is that there's so many different different stages 
so many different kind of scenarios that you find yourself in. And when you're around a lot of guys that have done not only that race, but are, have been professionals for 10 or so years, you, you kind of cue off of them, kind of see how they float through the pack, compare them to other guys that are, you know, maybe wasting energy. And, and then you kind of, you know, have, at least for me, I kind of have these teammates, non-teammates, just a group of, of riders that you notice and cue off of during the races and mimic what they're doing in the, in the pack. And that's been pretty helpful for me. So what are the things that they're doing that, that uh, you see as a good example of, of what to do in terms of conserving energy? Yeah, I think a lot of it's hard to explain when you're not in like in the, (laughs) in the heat of the moment, I guess, but you know, guys like, like Valverde, he's really just calm, never, never needs to put his nose into the wind until he does and when he does it <laughs> it's uh usually something that's that's going to make a difference whereas other guys attack attack at the wrong moments they're not going to use use the right momentum things like that and and you can kind of see see the guys that look like they don't care about the win until they win and then the guys that look like they really care too much and then then they're exposed at the end i guess so I think I think that's one example. Yeah, it's hard to it's really hard to explain. I guess the guys that hang at the back but don't really hang at the back, uh, like Yates is pretty calm. You know, some guys you think, oh man, they've been at the back all day, but then then you look around at the front and it's like. A... <laughs> it sounds like there's a sweet spot to be in, um, both mentally and sort of physically, in terms of where in the pack you want to be. You don't want to be too close to the front because then you're getting getting wind in your face you don't want to be too far back because then the chances of getting caught up in a crash or moving the uh, or missing the move are higher it seems like there's it's all about having a sense for the race and knowing that sweet spot that you need to be in yeah yeah exactly so a lot of it is just having that that sense experience but i think i think a lot of you know just personality wise you can see certain guys get a bit um agitated maybe and then they're then they're wasting energy trying to be be at the front and then on the opposite end you see guys that are way way too calm and and then yeah they, they'll miss uh, a split or get caught out in a crash things like that so i think it's just knowing yourself how to stay calm how not to get worked up and and use a lot of energy that you don't need to use but also not being super complacent and just kind of feathering around in the back I got to ask, um, I've talked to you previously about this. There were times at the Tour of Utah uh, this year where you launched attacks when it seemed like it was really early or you didn't need to launch an attack because you were already in the leader's jersey. And, and history would tell us that the best method would just be to sit and play defense. But you you were aggressive out there. Is that something that you've learned from that you know you can't get away with that in Europe as much is that or is that just your style that you you can't hold back when the when you want to be aggressive you got to be aggressive yeah a lot of it depends on the on the situation and I, I think for me I was just, just just having fun honestly not really thinking about the the end result and yeah maybe you do something that's <laughs> not the smartest thing but yeah maybe I guess I was just lucky and had had good shape and was able to make some 
some moves that were a bit risky, I guess, make those kind of things work. But yeah, in, in Europe, there's definitely a lot less uh, forgiveness for something like that. And there's deeper, deeper talent pool. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm still <laughs> so, so inexperienced, really. So even things like pulling on the front, I'll do in a way that's, you know, maybe maybe a bit taxing for the guys that I'm actually pulling for. So that that's one thing I learned, you know, you, you need to stay steady. Think about the people that are on your wheel. Think about where the wind's coming from, all those things. So, yeah, not not only in when you're trying to win the race, but also when you're working for other people, you need to stay stay composed. I, I imagine for someone like you, just like for me, riding steady is is not the easiest thing to do. It sounds easy, but it's not. And so I I, I know what you're saying when it comes to not being able to ride as steady as the guy sitting on your wheel might want you to. Yeah, you see like Sky, they really do a good job of that. You know, everyone says, oh, they're, they're steady. It's boring. But yeah, it works for a climb. But they also, when they're pulling, they're, <laughs> they're killing people on the back when it's, you know, uh, coming off of a downhill or, you know, certain sections of technical road. They, re- they really know how to make their effort count at least. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Here's a really easy one for you. When you are going into a road race that's exposed, know where the crosswind stretches are. Because the difference going through a crosswind stretch when you're sitting 10th wheel versus 60th wheel, if you want to talk about wasting energy, because that 60th wheel, you are in the gutter, you are dying. You're probably going to have splits that you're later on going to have to bridge across. 100%. I would extend that to any obstacle or any pinch point or anything that causes mm-hmm. the pace to rise, whether that's a transition from pavement to dirt yep. or a narrowing of the course or a change in direction on the course that changes the wind direction mm-hmm. where, from which it comes from all of those times and yeah. others that we, that I'm not listing. That's when you need to be way more attentive, attentive, most likely be way closer to the front because something's going to happen. Yeah. The chances are likely that something is going to happen. So we're going to talk a little later about times when it's worth wasting energy. And here's a bit of an odd one, but one that's really, I think is really important. If you are at a race that you really care about and you've never ridden the course a day or two beforehand, preferably two days beforehand, 
drive or ride the course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No way. Sure, recon is yep. very important. It is. It's good to know that. Then you, you've got it in your head and you know, okay, this is this weird chicane. I'm, I'm a little too far back. You have right. an instinct and you move up and then sure enough, something happens. And before you know it, you've, the field's cut in half and you're on the right end of that split, hopefully. One of the other positional things we didn't talk about was hitting the climbs at the back of the group. Well, like we were saying, Chris was saying earlier, anytime there's a significant obstacle change, change in terrain in the race, that's a good place to be at the front because mm-hmm. you, you can anticipate that the pace of the race is going to it's going to change. It's going to go faster. And so when you put yourself at the back, even if you're a really strong, confident climber, you're asking for it because you're going to have to wade your way through all the people that are getting dropped and shelled and dropping chains and dropping bottles. And you're sacrificing something by being back Almost certainly. So it it rarely makes sense to start a significant climb in a race in the middle of the field or at the back of the field. If you're doing that, it's because you've got no choice usually. It's not because you did it on purpose. Right. But if you think about it, the people generally driving up that climb are the really good climbers. So right. when you're sitting at the back... Even if you're one of the better climbers, you're still putting yourself as a disadvantage, right? Right, yeah. Well, you're if you're at the back, you're saying to almost kind of an arrogant, I'm faster than the fastest guys at the front because yeah. to stay with them, I'm going to actually have to go up this climb faster than them. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So you could save a lot of energy by hitting, especially the, the shorter climbs at the front and slip back and a little bit. Sagging back and watching... Also, the advantage of sagging during a climb, if the if the pace doesn't go ballistic, you start at the front, is you get a chance to drift back through the group a little bit and assess your competition mm. while they're climbing. Yep. See who's got the good poker face. See who's letting it go. See who's starting to bob a little bit. See who's making the effort to be at the front and who right. isn't. So it gives you that that little chance before the fireworks start Maybe to kind of shift their front derailleur while you pass them. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no. Yeah. no, don't do that. I don't recommend that. <laughs> Especially now that shifters are on your handlebars, at least in these modern parts, most of the time they are. <laughs> yeah. In the old days, you could just reach down to the down tube, dump them in the big ring. Yeah. Wham. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So we talked about positioning. The one that I really wanted to bring up is sitting on the front for no reason. Mm-hmm. So I call that the big dumb horse. And I say that somewhat endearingly because I have been one of the biggest dumbest horses <laughs> I've ever met. Mr. Clydesdale. Just because I enjoy it. I mean, but, you are a big jar with a big mouth. No, big jar with a small mouth. You're also a big horse with a small mouth. You're an elephant falling apart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a big, dumb horse with a small jar brain. Okay, thanks. That's like uh, that. <laughs> the most unflattering description I've gotten in a while. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. So on behalf of big, dumb horses with small <laughs> brain jars, what was, jar brains, what was Should it? Did I just call you a Canadian? That works. There you go. We'll go with that. Every, every Canadian's coming after you now. <laughs> Oopsie. They're too polite to cross the border. Yeah, that's true. That's right. true. I am still embarrassed by the fact that we finally had an episode where we had two Canadians as guests. So it was three <laughs> Canadians, one American. And a quiet. I'm not. And I'm we like were I'm, still cracking Canada jokes. Yeah. You were talking about Justin Bieber and all these famous Canadians that you had something for and i was like really you're gonna go with justin bieber as your no I, <laughs> that was mike woods i think that i was... think he brought it up no I'm, I'm going with rush sorry all right well that's yeah i was actually just the other night coming back from red rocks i introduced my my nephew to to rush because he hadn't really heard them like you can't call yourself canadian yeah and we just played rush the whole way back there you go he, he was very excited when i put on the song yyz and he's like oh i get what that's about no american gets it it's the code for the Toronto airport. Oh. oh. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Anyway. Lots of Ys and Zs in Toronto. This is not helping us with energy whatsoever. No, it's not. All right. Back so on track. back to the big dumb horse. Yep. 
get it on the front, you expend a lot of energy. Mm. And there's a temptation with a lot of riders, if you can't think of something good to do, the, well, I'll just sit in the field and save energy, feels stressful, or you yes. feel like you need to do more. So the reaction is, well, I'll get on the front and, and push the pace. Or maybe they're thinking, I'm not getting a workout. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a race, damn it. Let's go fast. Anytime you are on the front, the first thing to do is ask yourself, why am I here? And if you can't immediately come up with a good reason, get off the front. Anytime you're in the wind, even if you're on a breakaway, you should really, the purpose of pulling is to either improve your chances of winning or doing better in the race or your teammates' chances of winning or doing better in the race. That's it. There is yep. no other reason to pull in a bike race. Everyone signed waivers and pinned on numbers. Your objective is to beat as many pop people as possible. You are actually compromising that ability most of the time when you're pulling, especially if you're being the big dumb horse. If you're in a breakaway, you have to make a decision. How are the, How is the relative strength of the other riders in the breakaway compared to me? Am I going to try to attack them before I reach the finish and get away so I don't have to deal with a sprint? Or am I the fastest sprinter in this break by far? In which case, I want to make everyone as cohesive as possible because I know my chances of winning are very high. But if you've got no teammates and the breakaway is gone and the field slows down and you get impatient or bored, you feel like you're not getting enough KJs in or whatever, hmm. that's not the time to go to the front. I've been in a million bike races and all of them eventually heat up again. You just have to be patient. Everyone is thinking the same thing. Well, most everyone, they're all thinking, man, I can't believe we're just sitting here coasting at 20K an hour. That breakaway is getting minute after minute after right. minute right now. That means an explosion is coming. And if you just go to the front and ride along at 26 miles an hour doing nothing, then when the explosion comes, you're just setting up the other riders to annihilate you. A really good way I had bike racing described to me is it's a game of chicken. Don't mm. be the first one to flinch. Mm -hmm. When it's going really slow and a breakaway is yep. going up the road and you're getting nervous, yes. everybody Every else, else is, is getting nervous. nervous. Let somebody else flinch first. Yeah. Let them get on the front and do the polling. Or start attacking. Yep. All right, let's flip it around. What are the best ways to save energy, which is really what we're talking about here, saving the energy to release it at the best times. So Colby, Trevor, I'll turn it over to you guys. What are your favorite ways? What are your best Right in the of field advice? when nothing's going on. Do we need yeah. to say more than that? <laughs> Colby? Yeah. Well, I'd say there's that arrowhead sweet spot. You know, you want to be, yeah, 18th, 20th, 25th wheel in a big Peloton tends to be where you're, you're, you can see what's happening. You're still, you're not taking yourself out of the race. You're not completely passive, but at the same time, you can save a lot of energy depending on whether you're riding up, upwind or downwind and kind of tucking yourself into that place. Um, that's where a lot of clever riders tend to hide out. And when you want to really check um, little column A, little column B in terms of saving energy, but also still not checking out completely and riding at the back, is a smart way to do it. I've, you know? I've spoken with, uh, Payson McElveen a couple times now in, in recent months, and he's a mountain biker, but he's been doing a lot of these gravel races, and I talked to him. They're long. These gravel races tend to be really long races, and I always ask him the, the, the question, so what's your strategy? And his, his stock answer is kind of the same every time. It's be bored as long as possible, Yeah, which is meaning don't pull, don't, don't smash. Be don't. patient. You got to be patient. It's yeah. about sitting. It's about waiting. It's about waiting for that right moment. It's mm -hmm. conserving. It's the, all those zeros and zeros. Mm -hmm. You're choosing zeros rather than ones. You're, yeah. you're just conserving. And for certain people, that means being bored. For other mm -hmm. people, it's not about boredom. It's about conservation. But I'm, I'm with patience. Like that's my struggle in long road races is having the patience, mm -hmm. dealing with the boredom of just sitting there mm -hmm. and waiting for the right moment. But yeah. That's how you win bike races sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I do it by what I call the average power game. 
which is when you're in those couple hours of the race where nothing's going on, I watch my average power and play this game of how low how can low I get can it? I go? Yeah. yeah, it's like trying to drive your car and getting the max miles per gallon yeah. out of it. Yeah, yep. Trying to maximize gas mileage. I yep. still remember the last so a few years ago at Cascades. Not the last time I was at Cascades. Second last time. We had a rider on our team. It was we had just finished the flat stage, which was you know, nothing was going to happen. It was going to finish in a field sprint, but it was still three and a half, four hours. And back at our, our host house, he was showing everybody his fires. Like, look at this average, two hundred and sixty three watts. And I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> "Oh, you're going to pay for that tomorrow? Yeah. Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah, don't brag about it either. Yeah, races are not places to average to shoot for high average powers. You know, unless you're talking about the Lookout Mountain hill climb. That's a twenty minute hill climb or whatever. And you're just smashing. Even there, it doesn't make sense to go for it necessarily because, again, wind factors into most races. Unless you're talking about a hill climb that averages 20%, mm-hmm. you're still doing work for other people. So so you, you want to practice the energy game, the, this whole or average power or whatever you want to call it. This is practice not wasting energy. I used to love to do this. I would go to the, the weekly Wednesday night training race. And when I was getting pretty close to some target races... I would go into that race, and my rule was I couldn't break a 155 heart rate. Mm. And it's figuring out how to stay with the field, stay yeah. with the leaders without ever doing a really big efforts. Yeah. That's interesting, too. And, and doing that on us, like if you can do that week to week on the same course, you can see improvements. You can experiment with right. things and try different mm-hmm. things and try to bring that number down, that average power down. Yeah, I wouldn't do it every time because I do believe sure. in going to training races to rip yeah, yourself yeah. apart. But I would have yeah. a couple in a row where I go, now I'm going to go practice surfing wheels staying in mm-hmm. the right spot so i'm never in trouble yeah I've, I've given my riders that kind of task list in training races from time to time i'll ask them to treat especially a flat crit those are the most useful ones from a coaching perspective because you can do anything you want with them you can have them go to the front and smash themselves into oblivion you can have them sit in and try to time sprints or you can have them float treat like motor pacing and i'll right. tell them i want you to never hit the wind today you're doing as little work as possible and i also want you to give me a report card of who did what so I make them watch the tactics of other riders. Right. This rider attacked five times. This rider pulled, you know, for no reason for 5K or whatever. And mm-hmm. then we all dropped him later or whatever. And then a lot of times that's a useful exercise because it keeps the rider from getting bored. It also teaches them to focus externally instead of internally on their own sensations. And it helps them sharpen their tactical acumen because they're starting to look around and realize the patterns of racing and see the bad decisions that other riders are making or the clever decisions that other riders are making. Sometimes they see like, man, I can't believe this guy just ninjaed his way across that breakaway. How did he do that? I barely even saw him do it. Right. And if you were busy falling wheels or you're already in the break, you wouldn't have seen that. So it can be a good lesson. That's that's a great point. I don't think you can be a great racer until you can read the field. Yeah. Sense what's going on. Yeah. Multiple time Grand Fonda world champion Bruce Bird is one of those guys who you just assume will be there when the winning breakaway forms in the race. I asked him about it, and he felt this ability to be in the moves comes from having a sense for the field. There's a time when the field, you can just feel some of the other riders, okay, they're not sticking in, they're not taking turns. You know, in some races, like in, in these Grand Fondos, the World Championships, where 400 people are trying to win in your five-year age category, and it's on, the right time to go is as soon as you can. And as soon as you can might be a half hour from now. I don't know, like it says, for an hour. So because everyone else is going hard all the time. It's, they're, it's, they're, it's crazy. It's such, so on. You have to have this fitness so ready for those, because what's happening on the road in front of you, like, oh, you just caught this wave in front of you. They're all over the road. You have to navigate your way through them. There's um, these descents where people are crawling out from over the, 
you know, the passes over the corners because they've wiped out and they're all bloody. You're like streaming down the hill, and then someone's like, oh, here, someone's going fast. They jump on the wheel. You're like, get out of my way. You know, like, they speak a different language. You're like, oh, 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 you know, let me get behind the guy that I'm following. Uh, and, and I just feel like in those races, how much you have to use your voice amongst, amongst all everything else to help direct people and, and get yourself where you need to. Hey, these races are different. Uh, you ready for all sorts of different scenarios that happen out of the road when 2,000 riders are out there in front of you. Yeah, but as you said, there's so much craziness. It's you, you, you can't rationalize it. You have to have the sense. Yeah, if you wait around and try gaming it, well, I don't know. I haven't seen that work at all. Let's get back to the show and talk about how you learn to play the energy game. My advice as people are climbing categories is always, almost always the same, which is when you get to the top of your given category, if you're a four and you want to become a three, or if you're a three and you've got enough points to become a two, wait as long as possible. Make yes. them kick you out. Why? Because you learn the most when you're at the top of your category. When you're getting points and you're winning races or close to winning races, that's when you're learning how to win races. When I was 17, there was this unspoken rule. All of us had this race to become ones as fast as we could, and we thought it was cool. But it didn't really serve us because we didn't spend much time in the lower categories working our way through. When you're a four and you're winning fours races, that's when you get the best lessons. That's when you make the biggest mistakes. You go, oh, I could have won that, but I jumped too early, and then three guys went around me, but I know I was the strongest guy. You'll never forget that moment. But if you skip that race to go do threes and hang on for another three months in threes races and be mid-pack, it would take you another year to get to the point where you're going to learn that lesson potentially. So I always advise riders to pause. Just stay at the top of the category as long as you can until they kick you out. And the best case scenario is when the whole field gets pissed at you because you're winning so much and they gang up on you. Yeah. Then you're going to learn amazing lessons. Yeah. You got 80 How people racing against you. Everybody wants you to lose. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best time to win a race or get your teeth kicked in. You're going to learn either way. There's no, you can do no wrong at that point. Strength doesn't win races. Strength buys you a ticket to the poker table. Then yeah. you have to learn how to play poker. Well said. And a lot of guys that don't understand that. Too? No, that's mine, actually. Really? Yeah. Are you sure? Uh, every once in a while, this <laughs> dumb horse brain comes up dumb, with something. Dumb horse brain. Gets it out of the coach dumb size horse jar brain. or whatever. <laughs> I forgot about the jar size. I have my moments. <laughs> so what else? What are other ways to, to save energy? Think like a sprinter. I like that one. I do have some really quick sprinters that I'm coaching right now, and sometimes I have to remind them. There's a good chance you're the fastest guy in this race, so act like it. What does that mean? If you follow someone in a breakaway, why would you drive the breakaway super hard? Maybe at the most, you're going to match the contribution of the next strong, of the guy who's pulling the hardest at the most. Why would you pull harder? And sometimes they'd really have to think about that. You're the fastest guy there. Don't burn yourself out driving a breakaway to, to the line when if you'd stayed in the field, you probably would have won anyway, or there's a good chance you'd be top three anyway. Again, it goes back to if you're in the wind, it's got to directly affect your chances of either winning or doing better or your teammates. So when you think like a sprinter, even if you're not, it can be a useful exercise because sprinters in the classic broad brush sense are afraid to hit the wind. They don't need to. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when it comes together at the line, they're going to win. So it can be a useful exercise to think like that at times and conserve, conserve, conserve. I think I've told this story on this show before, but I absolutely love this story. And it, it was back, I think, in the 90s. And it was a, a race where two past national champions ended up in a breakaway together. One was just big threshold engine breakaway guy. The other guy was a pure sprinter, you know, a really good sprinter. And the sprinter sat on the breakaway rider for like an hour, would not pull through. 
to the point that the breakaway rider just got really upset and finally just slows down and turns around and goes, are you going to take a pull? And the sprinter just calmly rides up alongside him and goes, look, you have a choice. I'm not going to take a pull. So we can go back to the field where I'm going to win. I get to sit in and I'm going to win and you're going to get 20th. Yep. Or you can tow me to the line where I'm still going to win but you're and you'll get, get second. Silver. Yeah. And apparently the, the breakaway guy thought about it for a win-win. Silver's great. Yeah. <laughs> Towed him to the line and took silver. Yeah. Sometimes that's your choice. Mm-hmm. I've been in that situation many times. But that's also an example of a guy who just went, why would I waste any energy? Yeah. You know, it, it was cold. Yeah. It was it was mean. Mm. I guess it, it that, worked. That, that's, well, that's one of those I things too that- it's not quite right, but yeah. Well, cold and mean, are there. it was honest. It was truthful. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Better Sometimes that than, oh, I'm not going to sprint you. And then suddenly the line comes and whacks off. Right. Goes, yeah. right. Yeah, you know, that's something that comes with experience, too, is knowing that you can play that card, mm-hmm. that you can play that game. Like, hey, look, here's the logic. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yep. And you can accept it or you cannot. You can get mm-hmm. frustrated with me, but this is this is how it's going to yeah. play out. Not everybody has the confidence as a bike racer to do that all the time. They Agreed. might just be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm happen, you know, OK, I'll, I'll pull. That brings or, up a great point. There are times when you can be in a breakaway and other riders can goad you into working harder than you oh, should yeah. be working. Mm-hmm. And this go- I always come back to the same concept here, which is, look, everybody pinned on a number. Everybody signed a waiver. This is a competitive bike race. We all have a handshake agreement that we're trying to beat each other to mm-hmm. the line. Right. It's your choice. If you want to sit on a breakaway because you're smoked or hanging on for dear life and then you come to life at the finish, that's fair game. Like people may call you a jerk in my Code book of ethics, bike racing, whatever. The only reason you're a jerk is if you outright lie to someone. If you tell them, I am not going to sprint you, and then, and then you sprint, sprint them. Yeah. That's unethical, so to speak. You're a dick. But, yeah, you're a dick. But, <laughs> but other than that, if the person, if you make no verbal agreement, if you're, if it's not clear what your intentions are, if they're dumb enough to tell you to the line, you should be smart enough to out-sprint them. That was their choice. But also, it is your, it should be your conscious choice how much you decide to contribute to any given breakaway at any given moment. If you want to barely spit through and someone else wants to destroy themselves and prove how strong they are, great. Let them. Let them. Let them. It's not a fitness contest. It's a bike race. Yeah. Call those guys booster rockets. Right? That's <laughs> to your advantage. Yeah. The way to play that, if you want to be a bit tactically clever, is to do just enough to pacify that that big dumb, what was our analogy? Big, big dumb horse. Big dumb horse and let him think that he's going to smash the race single-handedly and rip you off his wheel on a flat road, even though he's not... Or she's not, and just let her do her thing, and then you're sitting back there just spitting through, just doing enough to pacify them, and then you get to the line, and you yep. you get to win a bike race. And there's nothing immoral or unethical about that. It's a bike race. People who conserve energy win races. Mm-hmm. A lot of, especially lower-ranked amateur riders, painting with a broad brush again, tend to have a preconception. Even a lot of ones and twos have a conception that you don't have the the right, or you haven't earned the right to win a race unless you're the strongest. Man, I'm here to tell you, that's a pile of crap. That's not what bike racing is about. (laughs) As Trevor said, strength gets you to the poker table. Then you get to play your cards. But you can't can't win the game if you're not sitting at the table. And you also can't win the game if you suck at poker. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think in terms of of professionals that I think of when you're, as we discuss this, I think of someone like Valverde, who often gets the reputation of a guy that is a wheel sucker. But look at his career. Look at his Palmars. He's won yeah. a ton. And because it's he's used his intelligence, he's used these it's tactics wildly. that are available to him to do what he does, which is win bike races. Smart bike racer. On the flip side of this, you brought up a really good point. A great way to waste energy is to get caught up in the mind games. 
Yep. People are going to try to bully you. They're going to insult you. Mm -hmm. They're going to do all mm -hmm. sorts of things to try to get you to do stupid moves. Mm -hmm. I still remember Mount Hood 2011. We had the, we had Chad in the leader's jersey. So my job was to cover moves. And I got in this breakaway of about 15 riders and they're all screaming at me to take polls. I'm sitting there going, I'm not going to help you beat my teammate. Yeah. Why would I take a poll? Right. They were calling me every name in the book. They were chopping my wheel. My favorite one is this guy chops my wheel and then goes, they rape people like you in prison. Wow. Yeah, some Taking people can be far. pretty aggressive. <laughs> and they also, speaking of when you're moving up through the ranks, if you're the new guy in the field and it's a local race and they'll take advantage, they're your fresh meat. They'll they'll try to take <laughs> advantage of the fact that you're a little bit greener or something like that and try to goad you into doing things you shouldn't do. Mm. And so you have to be wary of that. Have a little discretion. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. exactly like you said. Don't say you're going to do something and not do it. Right. Then they have the right to be upset with you. But you probably did the best job you could on that day, Trevor, because you you were barely doing anything and you were upsetting the continuity of that break. Right. And if we you got had, caught. If you had caught, right. So obviously all that anger and that breakaway, that's not going to make a constructive move. People are too focused right. on you, too worried about you rather than, which isn't what they should have been focused on. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how that works because the psychology of a breakaway can be very dictated by one rider. One guy starts yelling at you and then the other guys all of a sudden are paying attention oh, to the yeah. fact that you're sitting on. Why well, is this guy getting a free ride? You know, right. None of them are smart enough to figure out you're wearing the same jersey as the leader. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. At that point, you have two choices. You, you can explain it to them, which may or may not pacify them. But your goal isn't to pacify them. Your goal is to disrupt the breakaway. Right. The fact of the matter is half of them knew what I was doing and knew it was the right thing. They just wanted to they, see <laughs> if they could get me to right. yeah. work, yeah. if they could bully me anyway. Yeah. yeah. So don't don't fall for those. Don't waste a ton of energy because somebody called you a name. Right. Go, wait wait till the parking lot afterwards. Go shake hands. Offer them a beer. and Yeah. It's usually pretty cool. Hey, man. I don't know if you knew this, but... My guy was winning the race, and now he's still in the jersey, so. Yeah. Shall we tell some stories about when to spend energy? Those critical moments in a race when mm. you don't hold back. So I will start it off as the pure domestique. If you have a guy in the leader's jersey, as we were just talking about, and I will say I didn't do much work in that breakaway, but part of it was because I knew as soon as we were getting caught, you I was spending the, the rest of the race on the front. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. And I was spending – I spent – 20k chasing down Zerbal. Mm. That was the worst 20k of my <laughs> life. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a domestique, your job is to waste energy until you're dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's your job. Yep. Yep. Or to be one of my favorite games is to play the welder. If you have a, a feisty Peloton early in the in the race and you've got the leader's jersey, you have someone who's placed well on GC, or you have a rider that you want to be in a certain breakaway, this is a very effective way to use energy is when your rider's not in any breakaway, you weld the field together, which means you jump just hard enough so that you're sure everyone's on your wheel. And then as soon as you get up to speed, you just go and close the gap and weld it together. And then you watch and the next breakaway goes. And if your guy's not in that, you weld again. And if the next guy, your guy's not in the next one, you weld again. And then the next break, your guy goes. And then you kind of just hang out in the gutter and let people do their thing and chase. And hopefully the gap goes. And then if it gets caught, you start welding again, reset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to, to constructively use your energy to help your teammates set up the right breakaway. Or maybe if, you're, if your team is leading a category, like a KOM, for example, and you want to make sure your guy's in the break to go get more KOM points. Mm -hmm. be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Or you want your sprinter to get in the break, as an example. Or if you have the leader and you guys say, uh, you know, a common tactic before the night before the race would be, we're going to allow these GC guys to go up the road, but not these three. So you're just watching. And you weld it back together. That's a great time to do it. Another time is going into a technical section like Chris was talking about. 
it's not the worst idea in the world to ramp the field up a bit or use a bit of energy when you're heading into that dirt section sure. or that chicane Absolutely. or that or the base of a climb. Using energy moving up there is smart because it's going to benefit you. Absolutely. And in a crosswind, in my opinion, a strong crosswind, especially if you know the peloton knows what they're doing and they're going to use it correctly, you literally cannot use too much energy <laughs> to be in the top eight. It's sure. like you might as well treat it like the finish line because that's what it is. I've seen races below absolutely to smithereens and crosswinds where you've been had 200 rider pelotons in eight groups mm-hmm. and it can be the difference between making the first group or the second group and it's literally a sprint in that first 500 meters of crosswind everybody talks about how much climbs hurt i will still say the most painful thing in bike racing is being guttered in a crosswind mm-hmm. there is nothing to me more painful you're, you're shaking your head well oh, you've done the hour record i'm the arrow guy too <laughs> so even a 12 rider group with me in the gutter is less painful than me being on some percent grade. Or <laughs> that, that's fair. I'm, I like the climbs. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. where I, I, I'm a little happier. So I don't like that being guttered. Yeah. But I will say it's a good thing to practice. If you have a, a weekly group ride and you have some crosswinds, be mm-hmm. mean to one another, gutter one another, get totally. to practice. Yeah. Agreed. Within context, of course, you can't use the whole lane if you've got these things called cars. Yes. That the roads are actually made for. Um, just so you know. <laughs> Be careful of that. <laughs> but you are bringing up another point that, that's a big one for me, which is every race has two or three points that are do or die moments. Yeah. You either need to be there or your race is over. And it mm-hmm. kills me when I talk with athletes after the race and they go, well, it got really hard and that was a critical moment in the race. But I looked down and you know I was above my five minute power. Right. So I, I held back. You just go. Screw Why? Numbers. Because you're out of the race. That's a great example of using a metric as the absolute instead of as what it is, which is a proxy. Right. Data is for post-race analysis. It's for post-mortem analysis. You look back and see, this is what I did right. This is what I did wrong. This is the time and zones I spent. That helps me, gives me an idea of how hard the race was. So I have to know if my training is actually training me well enough to be ready for a race like this yeah. or, you know, et cetera. But yeah, it's a great example of using the metrics in the wrong quote wrong in a suboptimal way i'll say it's not wrong yeah but you could you could use them more effectively but those are black and white moments in the race where it's either you are there or your race is over so you give it everything you follow that guy's wheel and you pull you literally give yourself a root canal to follow his wheel until you get across to the breakaway and then you hang on for dear life for a kilometer until you're barely recovered enough to start pulling and then you pull as hard as you can every single pull from there to the line and that's how the break makes it it's a very common race experience and it's miserable while you're doing it. Racing isn't fun until after you cross the line. And then you go, man, that was so awesome. We went 400 miles an hour around yeah. that corner and we were going so hard on the flat road. But while you're doing it, it sucks. Yes. That's how racing works. Well, there's that great, know. great story of Swain Tough. I think it was at Fitchburg. This was before he had gone pro. It was right before he signed with Saturn, quite literally, because he got in the breakaway and he was a little heavier at the time and not as strong as he is now. And he was dying. And the story goes, at one point, he took his pole, moved to the right to let the next guy through, leaned over, threw up, <laughs> didn't miss going. his next pole. Yeah. yeah. And there were two Saturn guys in the breakaway, and they went back to their team manager and said, like, this guy's the guy's real. a little chunky, and he, he, we, you know, he needs to be a little stronger, but you can't teach that. And they signed him. <laughs> nice. And then he's a legend. Yep. That was probably the year he rode to training camp. Yeah. He had many of those years. Yeah. yeah. With the trailer with his dog on the back. Yeah, that guy's unbelievable. We got to just do an episode of Swain Stories. We Get them on. Absolutely, <laughs> they'd love to. Yeah, love to. Sleeping on the side of the road and encountering th- a bear, things like that. Do you yeah. think those two Canadians versus me, uh, I get picked on at all, or do you think is he 
Oh, he would snap like a twig. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he was physically in the room, yes, he would probably destroy me. I have always said, I can't tell you how many times riders have said to me in the Peloton, I will see you in the parking lot. And I'm like, tell me where. I'll be there. Yeah. If Swain said to me, I will see you in the parking lot, I'm pulling out of the race and I'm getting the heck out of town. <laughs> Y'all see you there. Bye. But he's a pacifist. He like meditates in the woods before he races. Does. He does. Do you know what he does in the winter? Well, he actually competes in ultimate fighting, mixed yeah, martial arts. Yeah. His team was pissed at him because he showed up to the March training camp one year with a broken arm. <laughs> That's understandable. But he probably responded, well, both my legs work. Yeah. Let's go train. Probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Okay, that's not saving energy at all. No, uh, nope. That's what expending are, energy. What the, are other ways to spend energy? My favorite, sure. and I think a lot of people's favorite, is probably when they see blood in the water, it's time to go. Hurt people. Mm. You know, if you notice that somebody is struggling, if you see those signs and you feel it's... Attack. Attack. Go for it. So yeah. every time you and I go up a climb? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, whenever I don't even have to see the signs with you. That you're struggling. I just want to do it. Just like daggers. Yeah. Well, it's like I, I wow. gave him a little bit of a layup to, to put me down. And boy, did you dump it's, that and do a dance. It's pretty much anybody on a climb. This is what this is my one strength. How do you do a poo-poo boy or whatever his, his name me? is? A poo-poo boy? Poo-poo cough. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes. Oh, that's Lachlan. That's a, that's a Strava handle. We just gave it away. Uh, he doesn't go by that anymore. He has, sure. he oh, had, we can give that he away. Had, he had two accounts. One, he would call himself Pupukov, which is a rap, rapper's name, I believe, and then something else. And But now he actually has a Strava account. That's a real handle. He okay. does. He does. Yeah. Anyways, not saving energy there either. And then the obvious one, you see the finish line. Yeah. See the finish line? Don't save it. Yeah. At that point. A time trial? Especially a short one? Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's oversimplified you've got pacing to consider but it's the opposite of what we're talking about in general which is use expend your energy as effectively as you can over the course so that your battery is completely empty by the end zero yeah one yeah. thing i do see with people time trial and you can speak more of this than than me is i see them overpace themselves mm. meaning they're too concerned about blowing up and so they go at a pace that they know they can do to the finish line mm. i always tell my athletes if you're going at pace where you Ask yourself, can I hold this to the end? And you go, oh, I don't know. That's going to be tough. Yeah. That's the right pace. My takeaway from that is you should hit 1K to go and think, okay, I'm either going to maintain this lossy <laughs> to the line or pass out. I'm not sure which. Yeah. Then you've paced it pretty well. Last K should be absolutely hanging on for dear life on a, in a flat course or a evenly paced course, that is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Any others, guys? I think like Colby said right at the very beginning of the show, the breakaway is a sprint stage in reverse for those breakaway riders. You want to mm -hmm. attack. If you know it's the one, if you want to make it the one, it's attack as hard as possible to establish that break. That's your sprint the for move. the day. Yeah. Yeah. That can be, it can be appropriate. Again, it comes down to the wasp nest effect of the field, yeah. how whipped up everybody is. There are times, like Tara said, Absolutely, you can attack yeah. at 1200 watts and go nowhere. Right. And there are other times where you can just go bloop and all yeah. of a sudden you've got an instant gap. Sure. So you got to be clever about that, but agreed. If, you're, if your objective is to really make the race happen at a certain point and you're confident you can happen, then throw down. Throw your trips yeah. in the, in the, on the table and see what happens. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make in the breakaway is not spending enough energy. I mean, often if you want to try to get in the breakaway, you're going to have to go with a few. But if you're yeah. in that breakaway where you think this one's got a chance, you have to approach it as, if we get caught, my day is done. Mm -hmm. Right. So That's a good way to everything. look at it. Yeah. 
there's no holding back thinking like, oh, we're going to get caught and then I'm going to do something again. It's right. This is it. This is my move. I'm giving this everything I've got. We get caught. I'm finishing 20 minutes down. Yeah. That said, I will add, there's some tactical nuance to that, which goes back to my comment about contributing to a breakaway. You should always think about your contribution to the breakaway in terms of what are the other riders doing? Am I doing 10% more than the next strongest Mm -hmm. rider or the next most contributing rider? It's really strength is not irrelevant, but in terms of your own contribution, you need to look at it as how much is everyone else contributing? And the, and it's not speed. It's not even time. It's it's you feel it. Right. Are they accelerating and are they pulling long and hard? But there are there are stages to that? Yes. When you are asserting a breakaway. You got to drive it to make sure the gap is established. I, I hate when I hear about guys going, oh, we had five of us. We, we were starting to get a gap on the field, but there was one guy sitting on. Yeah. Let him sit on, establish a break, yeah, then, then deal with him. Yeah. Then discuss. So once the break is established, then you've got more of that. Okay, let's analyze this a bit. How hard should I be pulling contributing to the other guys? That depends on a lot of factors. If this is the first time you've ever been in a breakaway or ever had a chance to get a top five, then it would be perfectly reasonable to say, I'm going to obliterate myself in this thing because I just really want to be top five. Even if all the four riders drop me at the end and I get fifth, I'm going to be super psyched because it's the best result I've ever had. Okay, that's a big step forward for you. Understood. But you do that a few times and you go, okay, now I want to be a little more clever. I want to be top three. It's not good enough for me to be the last guy across the line in a seven-man breakaway anymore. I'm going to start comparing my effort to the other efforts and contributions of the other riders in the breakaway. And then you you do that enough and then you say, all right, now I've got the hunger, man. I want to win a bike race. And then you can be more selective about your races. And you can say, does this constitution of this breakaway really suit me? I've got this super strong dude in here and this amazing sprinter in this break you know what? I don't like this. This sucks. Right. I'm going to kill it. And you sit on, even though the break is established, even though those guys are all working hard, that's your choice. And then you're win-win either way, because if you kill it and they all get frustrated, you come back to the pack, you have reset your opportunity to do something else. Maybe you counter when they get frustrated, or maybe you counter when you get back to the group or you fall down another attack. It happens all the time. Or conversely, you you stay out in the break and those guys drive to the line and they curse you and call you bad names the whole time, but you never tell them the gigs up. And then you've got a much more fair chance to beat that sprinter to the line because they all worked and you didn't. That's okay. I, I'm a breakaway rider. And one of the things I love the most about breakaways is you don't have to sprint. Well, yes, I do like that (laughs) element of it, but here's the fact about breakaways that you always have to deal with as a breakaway rider. I don't care who's in the breakaway. If the field wants to catch you, they will catch you. So the art of breaking away is figuring out how to do it in a way to convince the field to let you win. Really, I think of a breakaway is you're still sprinting. You're just putting the sprint at the beginning. Sure. There you sure. go. That's another way to look at it. <laughs> but I remember being uh, Mount Hood 2007, the first road stage. We had a breakaway of about 20 riders that got a good, I think it was about 14, 15 minutes up the road. And HealthNet got on the front, brought it back. Mm-hmm. They want to, they'll do it. If yeah. the field wants to, they can bring the breakaway back. 95% of the time. Yeah. I mean, there's some course variability in that. If you get a good climber and a break and they get a gap, the peloton, there may not be that much they can do. It all depends on the relative strength of the riders. But yes, in general, I agree. For most courses, that's true. It's about breaking down the will of the other riders. Continuing with that, you just reminded me of something. If you are going with a breakaway, it's rarely the first attack or the, the first breakaway is the one to succeed. It's usually a counter off of a shorter lid breakaway. Yeah. So if you're in one of those breakaways that's not going to succeed, don't keep your head down until the field catches you. That's when you ease up, 
find your energy knowing there's, there's going to be a counter move, move and I'm going to move over and jump on that. And that could be the winning move. It's like, it's like reading War and Peace. There's always another chapter. Coming, yeah. Right. It, or it goes back to that analogy you used earlier about how there's a line you don't really cross. There's a line in terms of season efforts or daily efforts, but there's also a line within races. And you probably have one really, really deep race. Where are you going to use that? Or deep effort during a race. Where are you going to use that? Are you saving it for the finish? Or are you saving it for 5K to go on that little roller where you're going to drop the breakaway? Right. Or are you, make, are you using it in the beginning to barely make the breakaway? And then you use it up and okay, now we see what happens from there. Kind of continue with that when you go to the, the post-mortem, analyze your power. Yes. You have a really good race. You might see, hey, I just PR'd a five-minute power for this year. But you never analyze a race and go, hey, I just PR'd my five-minute power five times in that race. Right. Yeah. You get it once. Yeah. You pick, get it once. pick your moment. And the only contribution I would have would be in a longer race, a stage race, you really want to pick your stages carefully kind of thing. Yeah. All righty. You've done this many times before. 60 seconds to give us all your takeaways from this episode on the energy game. Trevor. Well, horse. since big dumb horse. Oh, you just stole that from me. It's <laughs> about to say, since my big dumb horse brain only gets a moment about every twenty episodes, I'm, I'm going to be completely vain and make my my one minute Here my moment. Strength buys you a ticket to the poker table, but you got to learn how to play poker. That means when you're in a race, observe, see what's going on with the field, watch what other riders do. Start figuring out when it's effective, when it's not effective. Play these games like go to the training race and figure out how do I average the lowest power possible and still finish with the lead group or keep the heart rate down. Start experimenting, practicing all these things so you can really learn that when you expend energy, when you take that jar and you turn it over a bit, you're having an impact. Chris? I think I'll use my dumb self as the example this time and uh, talk about patience because I have very little of it in certain situations and certain types of races. And I think that can often play against you and will is a detriment to your success at races. So just finding ways to be patient. And that goes to some of the things you just mentioned. If it's playing games with yourself, trying to bring your average power down or trying to float through and, and find ways to, to conserve energy in, in your position, it's doing these things to remain patient, be, quote, bored as long as possible if necessary, because that is going to increase your chances of doing well. Colby, you found a new flow state. You've got 60 seconds. Please take it away and give us your takeaway. <laughs> well, you stole my word there. Flow state, I think that's what it's about, is ultimately as a racer, within the context of tactics, the demands of the event, whether your fitness, your own abilities, knowing yourself as a rider, you have to try to achieve a flow state in any race. And that means you're going to blend intellectual perspective with your own intuitive side, what you feel, what you feel the Peloton is doing, what the right moment to act is. And the way to find flow state is to be in a relaxed mindset going into the race, be confident, be prepared, and then also to treat each decision you make in the Peloton as like a binary equation, a one or a zero, a one being a positive choice and a zero being a negative choice. And when you're in a flow state, when you're intuitive and when you're sensing what's happening in the Peloton, you're using the metrics you have at your disposal, heart rate and power, distance time to help you formulate and add to that intuition and make those binary choices. And that equation is ultimately results in 
your performance on the day, either individually or how you help your team. After the race is the time for post-mortem analysis and looking at the data and understanding, did I effectively achieve a flow state? And did I actually utilize that system of ones and zeros to the best possible impact? Did I manage my energy correctly or did I use it at the wrong moment? That's what the data is for afterwards. It's really interesting that you ended with a piece on the binary system, kind of a robotic type mm-hmm. mentality, whereas we, we started this conversation talking about Trevor's robot that actually tried to escape <laughs> from his apartment. Suicidal so, robot. So we've come full circle. So I had my moment in this episode. Chris, that was not your moment. <laughs> <laughs> That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalkatvillanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash villanews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash villanews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Villanews and Connor Coaching. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coley Pierce, Sepp Kuss, Bruce Bird, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.